Welcome to episode 16 of Through the Noise with me, Alex Banks. Now today we're diving into the world of SaaS and tech with a very special guest, Jamin Bull. Now Jamin is a partner at Altimeter Capital, an investment firm focused on technology investments across both public and private markets globally. The firm was founded in 2008 by Brad Gerstner with just $3 million from friends and family. Altimeter now manages over $15 billion in assets with notable ventures in the likes of Snowflake, Roblox, Twilio, and Uber. Prior to Altimeter, Jamin was vice president at Redpoint Ventures with investments in Workato, Monte Carlo, CityBlock Health, and Root Insurance. Jamin began his career working in investment banking for Bank of America and Morgan Stanley. Now, Jamin, I've heard great things from Shomit Gosh over at Bolstart Ventures, so thank you for joining me today. Of course. Yeah, happy to be here. Awesome. Well, let's kick things off. I know you were men's varsity tennis captain while studying at Stanford. And with Wimbledon recently concluding, this piqued my curiosity, which led me to stumble across a video from 2010 with you featuring as Palo Alto's Athlete of the Week. Now, talk me through... (laughs) Deep in the archives. It was deep, super, super deep. But talk me through your journey from tennis captain at Stanford to now partner at Altimeter. Yeah, yeah. Um, now Wimbledon was, was, was fun uh, these last few weeks. I, I was a bit bummed we didn't get to see a Nadal-Djokovic final. That would have, it was, it was kind of definitely on my, my dream list. I don't know how many more <laughs> finals we'll get uh, from, from those two. So a bit, bit of a bummer he couldn't kind of go in his, in his semifinal match. Um, but yeah, ten, tennis has been a big part of my life ever, you know, since I was, since I was very little. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Still, still play it as, as, as much as I can. And it's, you know, luckily a, a lifelong sport. Uh, but I'd say growing up in, in the Bay area, I was always exposed to tech, um, you know, and, and, and startups. And it was always something that I knew I was, was interested in and, and, and kind of wanted to find my way to, I didn't exactly know what that path would be. And the reality was, is I, I, I almost stumbled into it. Uh, so on the tennis team, I would say a lot of my teammates um, and, and, and kind of former teammates who were, were older than me, who, who preceded me, um, you know, finance was a, a popular career path of, of choice, um, you know, more specifically kind of investment banking. And so that was, was kind of the path I, I almost fell into, given it was a lot of the people that I was hanging out with and, and my peers, uh, went into those roles and, and that's how I kind of found out about them, if you will. Uh, and I'd say at, in, in kind of while in investment banking, there's generally a few paths people took, you know, whether it was private equity or, or venture capital or, or maybe a few went into the hedge fund world, but I would say not as many on the West Coast. Uh, for me personally, I thought, you, you know, I, I kind of viewed it as private equity. You know, you got to invest more in the legacy kind of, slower growth type businesses and, and venture you got to invest and partner with businesses disrupting those kind of legacy incumbents and that, that was a lot more exciting to me uh, so i joined redpoint ventures where i was for i, I want to say about five years um, had an amazing time you know kind of working with the team there and, and kind of learning learning how to be a private investor and then joined altimeter about uh, a year and a half ago so that, that's a, a high level on on my my journey to get here yeah, you mentioned about disrupting legacy incumbents, and I'd love to really tap into what fundamentally excites you about technology, Jan. I would say at, at a high level, it's, it's, you know, I'm kind of an optimist, and, and I would say disruption and, and innovation is, is something that really excites me, right? And so when I get to dig into a lot of these markets, it's nascent markets that maybe don't have, maybe they do have a legacy incumbent, or, or maybe it's, there is no market. There's a, there's a market being created and it's a new way of building or a new way of storing data or, or a new way of doing something. Uh, and being on the bleeding edge is, you know, early in S-curves is something that I enjoy because one, I, it, it, I mean, most importantly, it, it just piques my, my intellectual curiosity. Like, I, I like learning. Uh, I think while the job maybe can appear repetitive when you think about the overarching arc of finding and partnering with businesses and it's the same kind of diligence and it's the same this and the same that. It's, it's actually incredibly different company to company, market to market. 
Uh, and just getting to learn about these exciting trends that are changing the way businesses run, the way businesses are operating, and even the way businesses are built, uh, it's something that is exciting to me. Um, and so I, I think that, yeah, that's probably the, the, the high-level overview. <laughs> yeah, I think whilst there is a repetitive nature to the game, there's always something exciting with each opportunity that, that at least comes across your desk. So I'm, I'm absolutely for that. Um, you also mentioned, you know, capturing capturing these trends, capturing these businesses early in the S curve. I'd love for you to just develop a little bit more on that and sort of what what you mean around that topic. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say maybe the, the best way to describe it is is with an example. And so, I, I spend a lot of my time working in and around um, what I would call modern cloud data infrastructure. So the way data is is stored and and accessed. Uh, so I say early in the S curve. What I mean is working with businesses who are developing technologies that are not necessarily wildly adopted or penetrated kind of relative to, to its opportunity set. And so when I look at the evolution of, of data infrastructure, right, kind of pre-cloud data warehouses, the world was very different, right? It was a lot of Oracle and, and IBM and, and Teradata and, and Atiza, uh, and storing data was hard for two reasons. One, it was really expensive. So setting up one of these cloud data warehouses was incredibly expensive. It was a very high uh, cost just to get any value. And at the same time, it was an incredible amount of time um, on an ongoing basis to to manage that infrastructure. Uh, and so you needed people and, and smart people to provision, update, uh, you know, and essentially call it keep the lights on. And so the barrier of really storing the data that you needed you know, in order to drive business decisions, it was quite high. And so what did that mean? It meant that the people who adopted cloud data warehouses generally were bigger businesses with bigger balance sheets um, that had in-house resources that could do it, right? Which was inherently limiting. Then we saw Redshift, uh, which is Amazon's cloud data warehouse product, come around, call it in 2015, uh, 2014, 2015, maybe, you know, was kind of generating real revenue in, in 2016. Snowflake was founded around a similar time. Um, and it totally changed the game. It said we are, you know, it was a product that said and that promised to make it very easy to get up and running, um, storing data uh, you know, with very small amounts of data if you wanted. And it scaled very quickly. Uh, you know, the kind of the big fundamental advantage was it allowed companies to independently store, or independently scale storage from compute, which means you know you might have a lot of data uh, that isn't using a lot of compute, and so you don't have to make trade-offs around one versus the other. You can kind of scale both independently, and it lowered the barrier to entry for businesses to all of a sudden store data and then use data and, and have data as a differentiator to their business. And now the offshoots of those markets we're seeing in spades today where take a, a market like um, an ELT, extract, load, transform. The thing about those is the pipes that get data from point A into a cloud data warehouse. Typically, that was done with a lot of in-house uh, scripts, right? Right, writing Python or, or, or heavy data engineering pipelines. There were some tools to do it, but it was a lot of in-house tools. Same thing with data transformations and, and kind of how you model the data. It was a lot of scripts. Uh, it was a lot of in-house built tooling. You know, now we have companies in the ELT space like Five Train and Airbyte. We have companies in the data transformation space like DBT that are all taking off. Um, and so I view that market as, despite how big some of these businesses are, like a Snowflake or or a Redshift, when you think about them in the scope of the overall opportunity and how much money is still being spent on legacy kind of on-prem data warehouses, there's still so much room to grow into these markets. And just, just kind of how like a DBT kind of uh, reinvented the data transformation market, there's, there's other markets that are being reinvented today that will spawn, you know, billion, multi-billion dollar type businesses, you know, and that's something that, you know, gets me very excited. So, it, you know, kind of went deep on, on kind of the data infrastructure piece in more particular, um, but more broadly, being early in S-curves, it's, it's just there's a level of excitement. There, there's a level of you know, getting to work with hyper-growth businesses that are doing cool things, solving big problems for companies big and small. Uh, that, 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 really, that really excites me. And it's, it's, you know, the biggest pleasure that I have kind of in this role is constantly getting to work with and, and speak to 
really impressive entrepreneurs, right, who are way, you know, way smarter than I am, <laughs> solving real problems, uh, and just learn, right? Uh, you know, I, I kind of often joke with the founders I work with, hey, you know, I might be learning more from you than vice versa. Uh, and that's a, it's a, you know, it's a unique place to be in where, I, where, I, where I'm constantly just learning. Yeah, that constant ability to always learn and at least always be the student, I think, is something that I absolutely relish too. Jam in. Um, and I guess speaking of data storage and data transformation, in an interview with CNBC back in June, I know you mentioned that the last decade has been about the move to cloud application software with the upcoming decade being more about the shift to cloud data infrastructure. Why are we seeing this shift and why is it so important? Yeah, I, I, would, I would say the shift was, was inevitable, right? Kind of the move to the cloud is an inevitable one. Um, but it has to come in parts. It, it, all, it all can't happen at once. So it, what needed to happen first was kind of application providers, companies like a Salesforce, right? Companies like a HubSpot, right? Kind of modern SaaS applications, if you will. They needed to move to the cloud first. And the cloud is really just a delivery mechanism for how their customers ultimately consume their product. But what it allowed for um, was a different way to sell, a, a different business model, you know, and ultimately a better product experience for the end users. Um, once we kind of, you know, started to, you know, reach a deeper level of penetration amongst kind of cloud applications, and I'd argue we're still quite early um, in that regard, especially when it comes to kind of vertical software, uh, what happens next is then the way we build those applications start to change, right? So first we'll deliver them, um, you know, kind of via the internet, right, uh, with cloud. And then we'll build them with cloud infrastructure and cloud software. And that, I think, is the current wave that we're in, which is when we break apart these applications into smaller individual pieces where we can optimize each individual piece, it leads to a, a, you know, an overall much better product experience and business, whether that's data infrastructure, whether that's other pieces of, of cloud infrastructure, right? There's lots of developments going on in, in kind of edge development, whether it's edge deployment, um, edge compute, right? We're, we're seeing a lot of innovation there, kind of cloud, you know, cloud flares obviously carrying the torch, but you have others, right? Like Vercel and, and Netlify, um, you know, kind of leading charge, right? So I would say we're very early in terms of companies being built on top of cloud infrastructure and, and microservices, you know, I see it all the time in the world that I live in, which is kind of Silicon Valley tech. But in terms of the broader world, like that is that is still an extremely early trend that I think will create uh, a significant amount of value over the, the coming 10 years. Totally. And I think, you know, it, it's it is such a great delivery mechanism that we're seeing, especially with with respect to efficiency and everything in between. I'd love to sort of take a bit of a step back and sort of cast cast your mind across the earlier stage of your career, obviously with with yourself operating as VP over at Redpoint and your previous experience in investment banking. What would be the biggest lesson from that early career that you've now taken with you to investing with Altimeter? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I, I would say I was extremely fortunate to to start my careers at places like Morgan Stanley and banking, and and then Redpoint on on the venture side. Um, I, I think, you know, who I am as an investor was because of you know one the lessons I learned at Redpoint, but probably more importantly the the people I was surrounded with. I think the group of partners at Redpoint, you know, were and still are uh, some of the best people in the world, as well as some of the smartest investors. And and I would say. You know, one of the lessons was probably, you know, it, it sounds trivial, but, you know, when you treat entrepreneurs with, with respect and, and transparency, um, it's one of the most important things you can do, right? And maybe just on the transparency piece, you know, our job is, is constantly meeting with companies. And the reality is, is most of them aren't going to be a fit for, for whatever reason for our fund. Maybe it's, you know, the business is too early Maybe it's I have doubts on on the market size. Maybe I maybe I have doubts on the you know the leadership potential in the market that a company is playing in. And I would say, you know, one of the lessons I learned was you know providing as as open, honest, and transparent and timely feedback as possible is you know is, is something that's not necessarily common in 
in the venture ecosystem, right? There's a lot of, you know, you, you kind of see a lot of jokes on Twitter about kind of blanket reasons, you know, and pass emails venture capitalists will send that all kind of sound the same, that all kind of come from the same template. Uh, but what I've always tried to do is, is just give very honest feedback, right? You know, and, and, and sometimes it, you know, it might not sound the best, um, but I, I try to be brutally honest and I, I try and kind of portray that as early as I can in my own work. And I think that's broadly been met with, um, you know, appreciation, right? Appreciation that, you know, feedback is given early in the process, you know, appreciation that, hey, like, here's genuinely why, you know, I'm not going to get over the hump on this business. Uh, and I think, you know, combining all those things together, you know, allow me just to build more genuine relationships with these entrepreneurs. Well, yeah, look, maybe, you know, something doesn't work with this round, and then in the next round, I was proven wrong, right? But you kind of have, have built that trust with the entrepreneur that I think is important. And I'd say getting to work with the partners at Redpoint, right? The Scott Rainey's, the Elliot Guides, the Satish, the Tomash, the Alex, the Annie's, right? It's, it was such a unique group of people. And even the older generations, right? Um, you know, these guys were some, and gals were some of the smartest people. Like I was very blessed to learn all these lessons from, from that group. Yeah, I think radical truth and radical transparency, I know, is a core principle of Ray Dalio, which can absolutely be applied to all fields of relationship building and also investing. And I think you, you mentioned that point there, Jamin, on treating entrepreneurs with respect and transparency. And I think, look, on the one hand, finding your differentiated product as an investor is critical, but also, as you mentioned there, providing this candid feedback is equally as pertinent. Yeah, yeah, maybe radical candor would be the best, the best way, the best way to describe. It. And and the reality is, look, sometimes there is downsides, right? Sometimes feedback and and kind of open and honest feedback isn't taken um, in the best way, uh, and and that, that that's okay um, because I think over you know the broader scope of of relationships, kind of open and honest feedback. You know, whether it's on something as trivial as valuation, hey, I, I think this valuation doesn't make sense for whatever reason. Uh, I think it's important. It's always important, all things being equal, to have as much radical candor um, as as possible because it just leads to the most genuine relationships versus surface level ones. Absolutely, all for depth of relationships because that's ultimately how the best ideas and uh, the best events happen. At least moving forward to your your current position as partner at Altimeter Jamming. Obviously, the firm was launched at the peak of the financial crisis in 2008. How do challenging times ultimately create the need for resilient leadership? And how do you spot that trait in the companies you invest in now, Jamming? Yeah, I, I, I think it's I think it's it's crucial. Uh, I think anyone can have a good attitude uh, and, and kind of plow forward when, when times are good. But, you know, inevitably in, in every business, there will be, there will be rough patches, right? Whether it's on the investing side more recently, um, right? Or, or kind of on the operating side, right? Rough patches can happen at any time, irrespective of, of the macro, but being able to, to weather the storm uh, and having leadership that can, exude that confidence to the rest of the team is 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 very important right and it, it's something that i think i've benefited a lot right at altimeter having someone like brad at the helm has been incredibly beneficial to someone like myself right who you know the last market downturn in 08 i was in high school and then so right less less relevant to me as as an investor because i didn't get to kind of live those challenges as directly um as someone like him but just seeing you know the the vigor with which he approaches everything today, kind of despite all of the challenges of the last, call it six to eight months, is, is something that excites me, right? And that's something that is is as equally um, important for spotting and founders, right? Because you know maybe and my job it's it's more you know bad times come and go more with market swings. Um, for founders, good times come and go. Maybe a new product launch doesn't go as well as anticipated. Maybe, you know, kind of win rates drop against a key competitor and there's a lot of introspection that's required. Uh, but I would say there's, there's probably a couple things I'll, I'll really look for. One is intellectual honesty. I, I think there's an element of, you know, to be a founder, you have to have a little bit of crazy in you, right? Like you, it, it's, it's pretty, when you actually think about, you know, giving up 
everything you're working on, putting all your eggs in one business, starting early, dedicating your life to it. Like you kind of have to have a little bit of crazy in you. It's something I respect a lot. Uh, but I think it's e- equally important to be intellectually honest, all right? To, to spot and to notice for yourself when things aren't going wrong and, and to not be in denial. Uh, there are definitely a lot of founders who might not want to hear hard truths, right? Might not want to admit that, hey, you know, my competitor is starting to pull away from me, right? There's always a little bit of, it's going to work out, it's going to work out. I think what's most important is the intellectual honesty, right? And, and working with founders who can spot early when things might not be going right and course correct accordingly. Um, because I think that's incredibly, incredibly important. Um, and, and then, you know, the, the other aspect would just be, you know, I like, I like working with people who are kind of similar to myself, right? He- heavy optimists, people where it takes a lot to, to get them down. Uh, and, and ones who you can just tell are going to attack every problem with, you know, unmatched energy. Because uh, that's, that's ultimately what it takes, right? Because, I mean, right now, all these businesses, especially public companies, right, their stocks are down big, employees' options are down big. And it takes real leaders to step up to the plate and right kind of calm all the nerves or calm all all the anxiety uh and i would so so i would say you know maybe wrapping up and circling back to your question right like i i look for founders who uh you know can demonstrate a you know a real and, and pretty mature level of intellectual honesty with also ones who just have um almost like an insatiable appetite uh, and, and thirst for, you know, just like an energy and passion for what they're doing. I love that. And I think to your point there, Jaren, the best founders can effectively balance this dichotomy, right? On the one hand, you've got that crazy devotion to solving the problem, but on the other, there's that intellectual honesty of knowing when it's time to take that step back, have that harder conversation and ultimately iterate appropriately. So I think the best can ultimately strike that balance right and know when to go on either direction. I know you're a private market investor, Jamin. I'd love to really understand the fundamental appeal that you have with VC and at least being able to invest at this growth stage. Yeah. Um, so I... Yes, all, all, most of the work that I do is, is kind of on the private side. At Altimeter, we obviously do both, uh, and our team's, our team's small, so we, we kind of each get to, to weigh in. But yeah, maybe think of it as majors and minors, and, and my absolute main major is, is definitely kind of the private side. Uh, I would say, you know, that why it excites me so much is the learnings from working with businesses in, in kind of hyper-growth mode, you know, both positive and negative. Are, are, are kind of unmatched. Uh, things happen so fast. Things move so quickly, right? And, and companies are constantly adapting to, you know, a game on the field that's changing. Um, and whether it's, you know, something simple like dealing with, hey, we, you know, we, um, we, we 2X, 3X our team in the last three years, two years, and, and now we kind of have all these operational challenges to deal with, um, or whether it's things kind of more company-specific, um, you know, or you're acting as a coach, you know, and, and more of like a, uh, a life coach or executive coach type role. There, there's just so many things that happen day to day. They're all unique. They're all different. Um, and, and at the end of the day, you know, I'll make good investments. I'll make bad investments. Like I'll be the first to admit there, you know, I will by no means be perfect. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's hard. Um, but when you do get it right, you know, the joy of working with some of these businesses that just take off, it's, it's pretty cool to be a part of. Um, but maybe even more so, right, it's, it's the businesses that, that don't, right, where you get to, you know, develop real relationships with, with really exciting people and, and founders. That's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing consolation prize, right, when things may not work out on, on the financial front. Uh, you end up spending a lot more time with those businesses working through, working through challenges, uh, and, and kind of real deep, you know, I would say friendships emerge from that, uh, which again, kind of going back to what I was saying is I was, I like to surround myself by people smarter than me. And I have the benefit of having a lot of, you know, pretty deep friendships with these entrepreneurs who are all incredibly smart. So I constantly get to surround myself with, 
you know, a high level of intellect, which is, which is something that I enjoy quite a bit. Yeah, I think friendships are formed in times of adversity, Jamin. And I like the idea of being interested over interesting and ultimately at least the five people that you surround yourself there. You know, if, if, if you're surrounding yourself with these interesting people, you know, ultimately you'll just get dragged up to the mean. So I think it's quite a nice model to uh, concept, in, at least in your head. Um, I guess moving on sort of to the numbers side of things, we've touched a bit on the relationship side. But I'd love to know why free cash flow is so important to you, Jamin, especially in a time where we're seeing a compression in multiples just from heightened uncertainty. Yeah, I would say, you know, free cash flow, you know, it's like that meme of the astronauts in space, you know, where the punchline is like always has been. I don't know if you know know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. But free cash flow is one of those. Yeah, it's, it's kind of one of those things, right, where. You know, free cash flow always matters. It always it always is the guiding light. It always has been the guiding principle. You know, ultimately, these businesses, whether private or public, need to be good business. You know, air quotes, good businesses, because uh, anyone can grow and and sell a dollar for eighty cents, right? But but that's not ultimately a good sustainable business. And and kind of I think the baseline for who has a good business is can are you generating cash uh, and are you doing so in an efficient way? I'd say what what maybe changes is. You know, given macro, right, and kind of given other factors, the weightings for which investors uh, might put on a, a stock or, or a private company change, right? And so over the last, you know, two years, the weighting significantly shifted to growth, where, where growth was all that mattered, right? You kind of hear the growth at all costs type mantra. Uh, and you can do that when capital is cheap, when rates are low, because if you're growing inefficiently, guess what? It'll be easy to raise more money at a lower cost of capital. So why not focus on growth now uh, and do it in a way where oftentimes growth is high, but it, it's inefficient growth. And with these software businesses in particular, I'd say there is a belief that, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a debate, right? But hey, you can flip a switch, turn growth on and turn profitability up. I'd say some businesses can do that. Some businesses can't. It's not it's not a switch where it's one quarter it is, one quarter it isn't. It takes time, but there's the belief that that can happen. And so the underarching, the overarching principle should be that free cash flow always matters. And at the end of the day, if you can't be profitable, you don't have a good business. Uh, but given other factors outside of a company's control, right? Investors will place emphasis on one factor over the other. Uh, I'd say recently that pendulum has swung back to profitability. And you've seen kind of the R squared or the correlations between multiples and growth, uh, revenue growth, that is, kind of start to deteriorate as other variables like free cash flow and, and profitability uh, become more important. Um, and I would say in moments like this, uh, why that happens, I mean, one, there's just, you know, kind of the, the, the fundamental math around rates and how they impact valuations. But maybe more importantly, in a down market, Everyone scrutinizes spend, and if you're not a, you know, critical must-have solution, if if you're, you know, luxury software or a nice-to-have, those businesses will find themselves in more trouble. And those businesses are generally ones that were acquiring customers at inefficient levels. And so, if you aren't mission critical, you will really see a hit to profitability uh, because growth can just just won't be able to happen um, at a profitable clip. Um, and so when we have this kind of dust settling separation of, of kind of the winners from the losers, I think free cash flow is really where it will become apparent is who is one of those winners and, and who is one of those losers. And we'll get more dispersion in the software world where over the last you know two years, it was more of a fiscal policy was a rising tide that lifted all boats. And as the tide goes out, you know, we'll see, you know, who's been kind of plugging holes at, at the bottom of the boats with duct tape versus, you know, who has the resilient, resilient boat that, you know, will will we'll keep floating kind of thing. Um, and so it's, it's one of those where free cash flows always mattered. There's just, you know, as we see in the public markets, it gets weighted differently based on other factors, right? SBC and dilution is another one. People don't care about it when times are good. 
when times are bad, it's, it's all you can hear about on, on, you know, on Twitter and in kind of investor discussions is, well, what's the free cash flow X SVC, all this kind of stuff. Um, and so times change and, and kind of weightings, weightings change as well. Yeah, I know there's that legendary Warren Buffett quote that is only when the tide goes out, do you discover who's been swimming naked, Jamin? Yeah, I think there that's there totally telling. <laughs> it's a better way to put it. <laughs> but I'd love to know how these private companies who have raised rounds at these rich multiples when rates were low over the last 18 months be able to weather this new normalization of multiples with higher rates and ultimately now risk off? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you know, I would say one, what, we're, what we've seen is most of these businesses, you know, one, kudos to them for, for kind of raising a war chest uh, and having an incredibly strong balance sheet, right, at, at a low cost of capital and, and, you know, low dilution heading into what, what's looking like a down market, right? Like what you absolutely want to have is a strong balance sheet given what is potentially kind of, you know, coming in the future. And for many of these startups, you know, it's, it's kind of record-breaking amounts of cash and runway. Uh, and so, yes, you know, and, and this is, these are conversations that I have with all of my portfolio companies, it's, which, again, it's kind of on the intellectually honest side. You know, every business that raised money over the last two years did so at a valuation that was much higher than they would have been able to raise in another point in time, right? That doesn't need to be a bad thing. It can be a bad thing. It doesn't need to be. The benefit is that these companies have, you know, three, four, five plus years of runway that gives them the opportunity to grow into those valuations, right? So what does this mean, you know, for the good businesses? It will just take longer to grow into the valuation. But the good news is, is they have the capital and the runway and the time to do that, right? The, the strength of balance sheet really gives you the optionality of time, which is, you know, incredibly valuable, maybe most valuable to startups. For, you know, for the other side, uh, this is where it is tricky, where high valuations are tricky. If you're not able to grow into that valuation before you run out of cash because either your market was too small or your competitor um, took more share than you or, or for whatever reason, then it is tricky, right? Because then more likely than not, you're looking at a down round. Uh, and, and down rounds don't come with you know, any structural consequences, right? There's, you know, for the most case, these rounds of the last two years didn't have anti-dilutionary clauses or, or things like that. Um, but it does come with a big morale hit, right? You don't want to be doing a down round because then you're explaining to employees how their equity has, hasn't appreciated in value over the last couple of years. In fact, it's actually you know, gone down, right? And that, that's a tricky, tricky place to be in. And, you know, make no mistake, there will be a lot of companies who raised money over the last two years that kind of never get back to uh, that valuation, right? I mean, we, you know, if you just look at the amount of businesses that raised money, call it, you know, not the unicorns, but whatever we're calling, you know, $10 billion plus type companies, you know, you need a billion dollars plus of revenue probably to, you know, to actually get to that valuation. There's not that many software companies with a billion dollar plus of revenue. Yes, we'll have a lot more in the future than we do now, but it's a high bar. Uh, and so for most businesses, I think, you know, maybe not, you know, maybe now, um, but more importantly, you know, six, 12 months from now, I think it's important to kind of have that, you know, honest conversation with yourself on what is the path of this business, right? Can we, can we grow back into this valuation at a reasonable timeline? Uh, if not, why not? Um, and maybe the answer is, if, you know, we, we just, we overestimated our growth prospects and we're not going to get there. Or we're not going to get there profitably. And so we need to readjust. And so you're seeing a lot of companies do layoffs who are probably coming to that realization earlier rather than later. And those are decisions that, that could save businesses. You know, it, it sounds weird to say it, but, you know, something so negative as a layoff doesn't need to be. Um, you know, that's a course correction that can set a business up for, for kind of long-term success by extending runway, by kind of giving them the optionality of time. Um, but it's, it's an interesting time, right? I mean, most businesses that would have raised money in 2022 did, you know, they raised that money instead in a preemptive round in, in 2021. And so if you were to kind of chart out their path pre COVID, maybe that meant a fundraise in 2022 and then another one in, in 2024. Uh, instead that 2022 round got pulled into 2021. You're right. We're kind of mean reverting now. Maybe it means the next round isn't until 2024. Right. And so there's kind of this lull 
as companies kind of grow into the valuations and it kind of becomes more apparent, hey, who will grow into the valuation? It'll just take more time versus, you know, who, who might be, you know, in for a bumpy ride ahead. Yeah, great points there. Um, Jamin, where do you see the future of venture investing heading emerging from this period of dislocation? Uh, back to the future, I guess. <laughs> uh, I, I, I would say, you know, the future of venture probably looks a whole lot like the, the past of venture. I, you know, I, I think for a couple decades, venture probably over-earned as an industry, right? You know, you kind of have the top quartile, top decile returns for kind of the venture asset classes being pretty amazing over the last 10, 20 years. And, you know, you can make the argument uh, we've been in a massive bull market for that entire window. I think the reality was is the asset class probably just wasn't as developed as it should be. Uh, and as folks have seen the types of returns possible in, in venture, we've seen kind of a massive inflow of, of capital to that asset class. I think it just goes back to people want to invest in innovation. It's exciting. Uh, and the innovation curves and cycles aren't slowing, right? And so while the last year or two's vintages, you know, I'm sure will be some of the worst, uh, entry prices were just higher, right? Yes, there are amazing businesses, but the prices paid were just higher. You know, innovation curves and cycles aren't changing. And so that may mean that 2023, 2024 are some of the best vintages. You know, like generally, you know, the worst vintages in venture are followed by some of the best. Uh, and so I think the interest from, from LPs, right, from pension funds, from endowments, from foundations to family offices, you know, the interest and excitement of having exposure to those innovation cycles isn't slowing and if, if anything is, is speeding up. And so I think the future of venture looks a lot like the past of venture, which is those who are able to kind of spot early and exciting trends earlier than others and those who are able to build truly kind of value additive relationships with entrepreneurs, um, as opposed to just being more kind of like financers, are, are the ones who will be the most successful. Um, and you've seen a few brands kind of, you know, live on throughout many cycles, you know, venture brands, that is, you know, and I think that's that that will be in, you know, it will continue to be the model going forward where, um, you know, what was important then will, will be important now. Yeah, definitely. I think we're absolutely seeing this reversion back to the mean. But I do like your point there. Look, we are going back to the future, Jamin, um, whilst also totally understanding that, look, this innovation isn't slowing. Um, it is. There are so many industries and parts now ripe for disruption, and that's only going to continue developing for the years to come. So it's definitely an exciting time there. I do want to touch a little bit on culture jamming and i was listening to a recent episode of the exchanges at goldman sachs podcast whilst they were interviewing your founder and ceo brad gersner and inside of that they touched on this concept of essentialism or the art of doing less and i know it's at the core of your investment culture at altimeter why is culture an important factor when defining the, the success of a company yeah, I, I mean, you know, take, take us uh, as an example. I mean, culture is important because it aligns it aligns everyone and it, it aligns kind of business goals with with personal ones. You know, and it allows for individuals and businesses to have uh, a shared alignment, um, which is which isn't always easy. And so at Altimeter, essentialism is so important because we realize you know, it's really hard to be great at a lot of things, you know, whether it's being great at knowing a lot of industries, whether it's being great at knowing a lot of companies, right? It, it, that's just something that's really hard. And so what we want to do is, is be great at a few things. Uh, and, that, and that's something we think um, would, would separate us and, and differentiate us. And that is values that each of us as individuals share. Uh, and it also helps frame our overall firm strategy. Uh, but I think culture is important because, you know, at the end of the day, whatever the business objectives are, um, those are important. But but making sure people are happy doing it and, and doing it in a way that that they get fulfillment out of is, is is equally important. And you know, when you have you know, our our firm is on the smaller end in terms of number of people. But when you have these companies that are you know hundreds you know and thousands of employees, you get all different types of people and, and backgrounds. 
and viewpoints um, that it can oftentimes be hard to kind of unify people under one, you know, common common goal. And I'd say oftentimes sharing core values is is incredibly important to aligning an organization towards achieving you know the the same business outcomes. Um, you know, and, and culture is just a way of again aligning individual goals and peoples with with kind of overarching business outcomes great i love that and i guess alongside investing jamming i know you also write a killer newsletter that is clouded judgment um i'd love to know how this has helped you find clarity in your own thought process yeah i i think so clouded judgment started right at the onset of, of covid is is more of a way to give people a a, a a perspective on valuation multiples as things got crazy, right? At the start of COVID, things tanked and then exploded up. Uh, and the goal was to give more historical context and precedent to the highly unusual moment we were living in. Uh, and it, it's kind of continued. I, I'd say as it's evolved, I, do, I still do a lot of the quantitative analysis, the charts, the graphs, the numbers. And that, that's important for me. As a private investor, because I think as a private investor, especially a growth investor, it's always important to keep an eye towards the public markets uh, and have an understanding of what in this moment do public markets care about? But more importantly, what historically over the arc of time do public markets care about? Because uh, that's really what, what you want to hone in on versus any individual given moment in time. And I think following public markets, again, over many years, kind of gives me that perspective. And, and when I do it every week, it kind of forces me to take stock, if you will, every week of, of what's going on, what do people care about now, what have they cared about in the past, and, and how should that inform how I think about the potential for private businesses that I'm looking to partner with. Um, so that, that's kind of how I get value of it. I, I'd say this last year, I've, I've, I've started to do more uh, qualitative work with you know, a few paragraphs at, at the onset of, of each of each issue. Um, that's whether it's macro commentary, whether it's thoughts on, you know, I think last week I wrote about stock-based comp and SBC. You know, it, it it's kind of a way. You know, I almost view it as a public journal, <laughs> where I write a bit about what I was thinking about that week. But because it is in such a public setting where there's, you know, tens of thousands of people who are going to be reading it, it, it kind of forces me to um, put a bit more clarity uh, and, and kind of fine tune my thoughts um, in a way that I wouldn't if no one was going to read it. <laughs> um, there is a little bit of pressure of, you know, when you put your public, you know, when you put your thoughts out in the public domain, you're going to get a lot of pushback, which I think is super healthy and I, I welcome it. Uh, and that is helpful to me as I refine my own points of view but by doing it publicly, it forces me to really pressure test my own assumptions um, and thoughts, uh, and, and it helps me kind of refine them in a way that would be harder to do if I wasn't right, you know, writing in public. Um, so it's been a bit of, you know, hopefully it, it gives people some, some context on current valuations relative to historical ones. And then, you know, maybe the selfish one is it's kind of just a personal journal um, that forces me to think a bit more critically than I, I might have otherwise. Yeah, I like that willingness to be challenged, to be proven wrong, because it's ultimately how we land on the truth. And I think to your point there on how it acts as this personal journal, but ultimately, you know, to, to tens of thousands of people, it does force you to go that, that next echelon deeper in terms of your own thought process and really sort of flesh out what it is I'm thinking and at least, you know, what are the second and third order effects of this um, as opposed to just having that conversation with yourself and perhaps not exploring that concept to the depths that you do when you engage in writing a newsletter. That's definitely something I can also vouch for, Javin. So I'm, uh, I am behind that. I'd love to now know, really, look, what's the best piece of advice someone has given you? And it doesn't necessarily have to relate to business. Ooh, yes. Uh, let me think. Um, that's a good question. I, I would say... I'm kind of a, a perpetual optimist, right? Whether that's a character flaw or, or a, a good part, you know, whatever the opposite is, uh, is, is TBD. But I, I think the advice that was given to me 
was to constantly question your assumptions. Um, you know, whether that's in the context of business or, or something else, right? Relationships or, or others. Like I tend to always see the good in people. I tend to always see the good in businesses. Um, but I think it's important for someone like myself who kind of has that optimistic, you know, perpetual optimistic personality is to, to always ask myself, Hey, well, what could go wrong? Or, or what am I not seeing? Right. For a business, um, you know, what could go wrong, right? Where, where, why could this market be smaller than I, than I'm anticipating? Right. Or, or why could this other competitor actually have a better approach? Where, where could I go wrong? Right. Or it's, you know, it's a life decision, right? Like, why is this life decision, you know, that may seem good on the surface and I'm excited about like, where, where could this go wrong? Or why is this a not, not a good thing for, you know, either me or my wife or my kids or my family. Uh, and so I think constantly questioning my base case Again, whether that's for a business decision or a personal decision is, is something that, um, that I need to do a good job at uh, because I just always have this positive, <laughs> this positive outlook. Uh, I'd say maybe you know, more of like a business-focused one. Uh, yeah, I guess the first one kind of was that. But you know, another thing, you know, maybe a specific piece of advice was I can definitely be verbose in, in how I talk about and explain my own points of view. And I think one of the, one piece of advice I've been given multiple times at, at many stages of my career is, is, is essentially, uh, you know, less is more, right? And if there's ways I can make the same point without kind of fumbling around it or, or kind of walking in circles, uh, that's something that makes you a better negotiator. It makes you a better communicator, um, and, and all of which are, are very important. So I, I'd say kind of the less is more is something, whether it's written communication or verbal, um, that I always try and focus on. And, you know, I think it will be something I continue to work on throughout the rest of my professional career. No, I love that. I think simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. So anytime you could, you know, cut the, uh, cut the facts and, you know, keep it, at least keep the message to the core. Um, that's absolutely something I at least try to do as well, Jamin. Um, Awesome. Now, to wrap things up for the main part of this podcast, tell me, what does your perfect day look like? Ooh. <laughs> okay, well, uh, I have three kids under three. Our youngest is six months and, and not sleeping through the night. So the perfect day definitely starts with uh, the baby waking up uh, less uh, than more. Right? I, 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 Sleeping through the night, baby, would be the perfect start to the day. <laughs> uh, I, I think after that, you know, I, I do genuinely, I, I really enjoy, like, what I do. Uh, I would say, you know, a, a day where I can move the needle relationship-wise with a few founders that I don't currently have the pleasure of working with, um, you know, while also having constructive conversations with some of the CEOs and founders um, that I do have the pleasure of working with are, are always amazing days. Uh, and I'd say doing it in a way in the workday um, that gives me time to, you know, spend with my kids when I get home, right? Like, I try and have as efficient days as possible without, you know, as much wasted time so that I can get home for, you know, for, for dinner time and, and, and the bedtime routine, uh, with with the little ones, because I'd say you know above all uh, that truly is my grounding principle. And you know no matter what goes on at work, I could you know I could have a terrible day. Um, you know I come home and I'll you know maybe you know immediately be you know not in a good mood just because whatever happened at work. But it you know <laughs> the tide can turn very quickly with you know a simple smile or, or look or uh, coo from you know one of the kids. Uh, that yeah, you know, those are the moments that I truly cherish. So like I, I always try and as much as possible make time for that. Uh, and, and sometimes that means you know you, you kind of pause work earlier and, and take a break. Then the kids go down and you know then it's you know plug the computer back in and and, and fire it up. Um, but I'd say the perfect day is, is one generally above all else where I can you know spend some quality time with uh, with the kids. I love that family ultimately at the end of the day is the most important factor and uh, yeah definitely prioritizing that I can I can absolutely get behind um, now I do have a tradition on this podcast Jamin where at the end of the show each guest answers a question that was left by the previous guest 
So last week we had Caitlin Bolnick, principal at CRV, on the show. Their question, Jamin, is what is the mistake you are most proud of? Oh, this is going to be one of those questions where I'm going to think of a much better answer after the fact. <laughs> uh, the mistake <laughs> I'm most proud of. I mean, maybe I'll kind of, I don't know. It's not a great answer, but I'll, I'll kind of answer it in an answer with something we've almost already talked about. <laughs> uh, but I would say, you know, generally mistakes that I make are, are ones where I'm too optimistic and I don't take the time to think through the downside or, or, or the, you know, what could go wrong case. Uh, and I'd say I'm proud of that because I would say, you know, one, being an optimist just like helps me, I would say, be like happier <laughs> on a, uh, on a day-to-day basis, you know, however I want to, or I can try to quantify that. Uh, but I think it also like in this job, like in, in the venture world, you kind of do have to dream big. Um, and if you don't dream big, you know, you oftentimes can miss the exciting opportunities early on in their life cycle that can be, you know, real game changers, you know, um, from a personal career standpoint and, and kind of fun, fun return standpoint. And so I would say it's a, it's not a specific mistake, but may, maybe like a broader mistake, just being too optimistic, which I, you know, I'm, I'm proud of because I think it, you know, it, it makes me happier. Uh, and, and also puts me in a position to, to find and, and kind of partner with the truly special businesses where you kind of have to be drinking the Kool-Aid a little bit to, uh, to kind of to see the grand vision. Yeah, I think optimism definitely bleeds over to the idea of conviction for whatever idea or founder that you're backing. So I think it can absolutely be <laughs> a good level um, to have as a as a core characteristic jamming. Uh, but obviously, you know, that that does leave your your downside, you know, the the other tail, you know, almost sort of um, slightly unconsidered yet having that conviction is is absolutely necessary to, you know, back the boldest, the brightest and the best founders. So, uh, yeah, great point. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Jamin, we have come to the end now, but it has been a whole lot of fun exploring, you know, SaaS trends, the evolution of tech, culture. So, listen, really glad we got to do it. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, l- looking forward to you know li- listening to more 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 of your your guests in the future. And congrats on an, an amazing podcast. <laughs>